I'm Charlie Hipwood, CEO of Mass Ventures. And I'm Stacy Swider, an investor at Mass Ventures. And we welcome you to the Fundable Founder, where we'll be exploring relevant topics for technology entrepreneurs to help them succeed in raising capital and in growing their businesses. As a founder who started and ran three companies, I didn't know what I didn't know when I first set out. <laughs> but you eventually figured things out, right? For the most part, through trial and error and mentorship. But now as a VC, I'm frequently advising entrepreneurs on the same topics. So Stacy and I are here to share that earned wisdom with you, along with the experts that we interview on a variety of subjects. We are. The roadmap to a successful startup is at your fingertips. So turn up the volume and grab the keys to success for your fundable founder journey. Hi, welcome back. This is Stacy from Mass Ventures. And in today's lesson, we're going to talk about government sales and specifically DOD sales, uh, because I've brought on board with me today, uh, Stephanie Hutch, who is an expert in all things DOD sales. Um, Stephanie, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, thank you. So I'm Stephanie Hutch. I am a consultant with the UMass Lowell Research Institute, UMLRI, and specifically their North Star campus, which is a 20,000 square foot facility located right next to Hanscom Air Force Base. Fantastic. And it's an incubator for uh, small companies. And yes, great place to hold meetings with the DOD, et cetera. Army Futures is across the hall. Um, lots of good things yes. going on there. So I thought maybe we could just dig right into this and maybe you can open up with some pros and cons about working with the government. Sure. So, you know, working with the government and the DOD uh, can be really exciting. There can be a lot of great benefits to working with them as a customer. And there can also be some challenges and some cons that um, can sort of serve as barriers to entry and, and barriers to performance. So, when I think about some of the pros or reasons why a company would want to engage with the DOD specifically, for me, it really comes to mission first. A lot of the problem sets are very leading edge from a technology perspective, um, very complicated. There's a lot of stakeholders, a lot of integration of different needs and requirements, not only within one service branch, but across multiple branches and geographic locations as well. So. The challenges can be really dynamic and changing, so that's exciting, you know, from a technology perspective. Also, the government can be a really great customer. Once you get into the market and start selling and understand how to work with them and, and where you fit, where your company fits within the market, they pay on time. They're very reliable. Some programs of record can be very, very big, multiple-year efforts. Um, yes, with, you get five or even ten-year contracts. Right. They're early adopters. They will pay for you to do some of your technology development to pivot it to a military use. Yes, absolutely. They're always looking for research development opportunities and ways to mature technologies and then integrate them in unique ways as well. So there's a lot of different benefits, I would say, to pursuing. They DoD love as a high customer. tech. They love high tech. Yep. I like to tell people that DOD spent more on solar development than the Department of Energy. At least through the at least through the SIPR process, way mm -hmm. upspent. They love their solar stuff. They'd be surprised what they love. Their needs are vast, including healthcare. So it, 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 whatever you're doing, and sometimes the DoD has a need for it. Um, certainly logistics and all types of software, cyber, AI, um, sensors, vision, space, all things space. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of needs. All things underwater, ocean weather. <laughs> right. Fabrics and materials, you know, the development of 
of smart fabrics is a huge topic. Um, anything related to data, data management, data cultivation, um, collection, transmission, security, human very human data performance. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. yeah, yes, yeah, you say like materials. I remember there had one about gloves that wanted special gloves. Yes, so this is yep. tons. Of, whatever you're doing, the DOD might find a use for it. Yeah, right. like, again, they will pay you to develop it. But there are some cons, aren't there? They don't marry you, for one. They they might invest in you for a while and go, ah, <laughs> our, our priorities have shifted. Yes, um, another, you know, kind of con or just reality to be aware of is the sales cycle with the government and with the DOD can be very long. Mm. Um, a sales cycle of 18 to 24 months is standard. Some of the large primes pursue bidding opportunities three to five years out. So um, just be prepared for that. I know the, the SIPR cycle can be a lot faster, but if you're looking at the larger programs of record, which pursue a traditional acquisition strategy, you need to be prepared for a long sales cycle. And just to say, when Stephanie and I say SIBR, we're talking Small Business Innovation Research, or an SBIR, STTR. And also, I, I want to just add any, any government sale also, that would include municipal or state or other federal agencies, it always takes about two years because it takes a year for them to look at you and get to know you. And then there's this sort of RFI bidding process. and then, Or it takes a year for them to figure out their budget. Right. And that's, not, that's actually really similar, I, I would say, to any enterprise sale. That would also be true if you were selling to Ford Motor Company or AT&T, any large mm -hmm. customer. It's going to take two years for them to figure out whether they want it and what their budget is. Right. So um, so you, so you, a, a company might be um, a university spin-out or a company that maybe has been slowly working on LIDAR, LIDAR and is really onto something. They think there's a need. How do you get started? I mean, how do you find out if someone's interested in your technology? Who do you call? It, it's a tough one. It's really hard um, because every agency, every facility, so base or post can be very different with the way that they engage with industry. I would say if, if you're aware of an opportunity or a need, so whether that is through a conversation you had or something you heard at a conference or a briefing or a topic that you saw under an SBIR, then you, you're already part of the way there. You know that there is a need and there's an interest in, in what you're doing. So that's a good start. There are things that are common to government contracting just as in any business, you know, know your market, know who's buying, what you're trying to sell or what you're trying to develop. Um, take the time to do your homework, you know, try to understand really, have they used that technology in the past and in what ways, what would you bring to that customer that is unique or different? Is it a technology capability? Is it your ability to produce faster or cheaper? So really understand why they would want you, what makes you special and makes your technology special. And I just I'm a big fan of the i 100 phone calls and or most incubators ask teams to mm -hmm. do. And it is hard in the DOD. It's very, it's simultaneously very public and very obfuscated. Yes. Um, but they do have, we'll circle back to industry days, but they do have industry days. They do have small mm -hmm. business offices. And also you can, a lot of the researchers say at Wright-Patterson or at Naval Research Lab, like a lot of the researchers are out and about and in the public and that maybe that's a way to wind your way back to, just to clarify, you know, there's the research they do. And then a program, a record is actually when they're building something that's going to the field, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. 
Another thing I would say is there are many professional organizations, and this is not a plug for any one in particular, but just to share that there are a lot of organizations, they're usually nonprofits, and their whole mission is to connect industry with government and academia. So groups like APSEA, NDIA, AFA, which is the Air Force Association, uh, Navy League, NDIA has women in defense. I mean, there's so many, right? And you can just, just research and find some in your area, find a chapter, but there will be events where they bring in government speakers. Um, there will be networking opportunities. So you really have to make that effort, you know, as you would in a commercial environment as well, to understand who the customers are, how you can talk to them, and who the other competitors and, and folks in your market are. You know, um, one of the big things that we look at often is partnerships. And that's something, Stacey, you and I have talked about um, the, the necessity to partner, especially as you're breaking in as a new, a new company breaking into DOD, partnerships are, are critical. So if you can take advantage of these networking opportunities to find companies who have adjacent technologies or complementary technologies, that can be really beneficial. That's true. You can reach out, you know, some government people are on LinkedIn and whatnot, but you can mm -hmm. find them through articles, but you can also just reach out to people at BAE or Raytheon or wherever it is that, you know, they have that that thing or some smaller primes, you know? Mm -hmm. yep. So, so you, they think there's, you think there's a need, you, you have an invention, you think you do, you talk to people, there's some excitement. Um, how do you um, find a solicitation? So some of these professional organizations will have acquisition days uh, or procurement days where they'll talk about opportunities where the government wants to buy something, a hardware or a, a service uh, from industry. Um, there's also some free tools like beta.sam, which is a website. Uh, you can you can log on there, create an account, and just search. And it yes, will post. That's, that's run by the government, beta.sam.gov, yep. I believe. .gov, yes, yep. and, you sh and you, they're all public, and you, you should never have to pay. You, everyone should know this. You never, ever have to pay anybody to see a solicitation or to file for a solicitation. All government bidding is free to the bidder. Because there's a lot of, once you start making your SAM account, you get inundated with 15 emails about people who will do services for you. You don't, you can hire them if you want, mm -hmm. but you don't have to, it's never a requirement. Sorry, I just want to add that. If anyone's really new to it, don't get scammed. Right. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. Some of those tools and services can be very expensive, you know, yeah. especially for small businesses and they can be beneficial and they can help you streamline and expedite some of your sales and business development efforts. But but you're right, you don't have to have them. There are free tools and any dollar spent by the government is public knowledge. So you can find it and you can find solicitations and opportunities for free. Excellent. So then um, a, so a pre-solicitation a pre comes out, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Or wait, an RFI, is that the same thing as a pre-solicitation? It's a, it's a type of uh, marketing tool. So request for information is a tool that government contracting officers or acquisition professionals will use to go out to industry to see what's out there, what's what's available. It's really a requirement of the contracting team to do market research and industry engagement. So it is part of their job and part of the acquisition requirement to go out and see what is currently available. So within market research, there are a lot of different tools that contracting officers will use to gather this information. So one is an RFI, a request for information. They'll put out a usually 
I'd say one to three page request for uh, your basic company information, you know, who's your company, the size, things like that. And then uh, more detailed responses of what type of technologies do you currently offer? How would you potentially respond or address this problem? And then they could give you a series of problem uh, challenges just to kind of see what, what you'll answer. I also found in the past, if I didn't do the RFI, I missed one once. It was mm -hmm. just a thing for Wright-Patterson or AFIT. Um, I missed the RFI and it locked me out. I couldn't bid then. Yeah, so I'll say this a lot during this. It depends um, because every agency and every contracting team is different. But usually there's there's not necessarily a requirement, but government may down select based on your response and participation. And I, I mean to say that if you do not respond to the market research, like an RFI or a sources sought type of release, if you do not engage, the government will assume that there are not qualified or interested vendors available, and they may pivot their complete acquisition strategy. So if you are a small business who has that capability and you do not respond, the government has no way of knowing that you're out there and interested. So it's always a good idea to respond, even if your solution is not the complete solution to the problem that the government is looking for. Respond with what you have and what you can do. And also mention partners. If you're part of a joint venture or a mentor protege program, which is through the Small Business Administration, you know, talk about that. Let the government know sort of who you are and what makes you special um, so that they can consider that as they finalize their acquisition strategy. That's a really good point. Partners can be really key mm -hmm. um, in, in winning a bid. We're going to circle back to that. So the next stage is there's a pre-solicitation, right? Yes. So pre-solicitation just means the final solicitation or request for proposal RFP has not yet been released. Um, the contracting team is still working through what that acquisition strategy will be like. In that pre-solicitation phase, that is your time to ask questions, request meetings, um, submit capability briefs, all of that engagement with the government customer or government program office will occur in that pre-solicitation phase. Once the government releases a final RFP or request for proposal, um, also called a solicitation, once that's released, finally, then the conversations will stop. Um, typically, there down. could be, <laughs> they shut down because they want to make it fair for everyone. So usually there's a Q&A, a question and answer opportunity. So they'll send out a final RFP. You can review it. You can formally submit questions. But any questions and then answers from the government will all be published as, as a solicitation attachment or addendum. So just be aware of that when you're thinking of your questions, you know, is will this question give away your competitive advantage or could it give a competitor insider knowledge that maybe you don't want them to know? So there is a, a strategy when you're asking questions because every question and answer will be published. <laughs> it so. is tricky. You can just sort of give your cards away. Uh, right. Show your hand <laughs> just with your questions alone. There's also during the pre-list pre-solicitation period, there are sometimes industry days there where you can really walk up to somebody and have a quieter conversation. Yes. And again, it, it depends on the contracting team and also where they are in their acquisition process. The further away you are from the final solicitation, the more free, I would say, the government is with having those type of one-on-ones or um, conversations. The closer you get to them locking down that acquisition strategy, the more formal things will become. So 
um, for example, in an industry day, if there is a Q&A opportunity where they have microphones, you know, and you can go up and ask a question, typically someone will record questions and answers and publish them. So you have to remember, you know, you're working for the government in a public forum, spending public dollars. So it's, it's not like a commercial opportunity or commercial customer where you can go and, and negotiate directly. Things will be open and things will be made available to the benefit of you, but also, like I said, to your competitors as well. So just something to keep in mind. Definitely. And then it goes towards the bidding stage or the, you put in your proposal. It does mm -hmm. always, is it, is it always like the lowest cost proposal wins? Uh, again, it depends. I think that I need a <laughs> it depends. Or something for that. It depends. Um, and it, it really does. It depends on the contracting office. Um, the funding that's available, the type of work that's being um, acquired or procured. If the contracting team decides to release a bid or release an RFP as LPTA, lowest price technically acceptable, then what they will do is they will take all of the technical responses and ensure that you are compliant. So that's the first threshold. You have to make sure be that you, are, yeah. you have to be technically compliant or you're just going to be out. The whole proposal and, has to be compliant. If if they say you have 50 pages, that's it. You have 50 pages. Right. You have I mean, to have they, all the right numbers. You have to have your like <laughs> NAICS codes. You yeah. everything. And, all, um, and and if you have a subcontractor, say you, say you do have a partner, and say your partner is Raytheon, you have to have that subcontract paperwork submitted appropriately too, which they know how to do. But but if your partner is UMass or North Star Campus, that paperwork has to be appropriate too. Sorry to interrupt. That's there. right. Compliance no, it's, across the board. This is this is the French word bureaucracy. <laughs> you have to, and it, it's down to um, the type of font. If they want Times yeah. New Roman size twelve, I'm sorry if you don't like that font. You have to respond in that way. If you have a fifty-page technical volume and you submit fifty-two. They will literally rip off the last two pages and they won't read it. So you have to follow the directions. You have to be obsessive about that because the government will just throw you out if you're non-compliant, non right? So there's a formatting compliance and there's technical compliance where they will ask you to respond to either challenge problems or give your solution to fixing um, a problem or technology gap that the government has. So in your response, if the government feels that you did not comply with the requirements of the prompt, they will throw you out. So, um, and actually, and it's worth noting yeah. too in the fine print that the government can only pay you for deliverable. That deliverable can be a report, mm -hmm. but it's very important, right, to say this is our deliverable. You know, usually you get to detail right. how much time, what's the task, how many hours, who's working on it, and what's the deliverable. They give you a format to follow, but mm -hmm. yeah. Right. However, I'll say the government will not reimburse you to submit a proposal. So if you're going after a program of record proposal where you're responding to an RFP, they won't pay you for that. So that's a business cost that you need to be prepared for. Mm -hmm. um, if you are successful later, yes, you can go through and talk about your execution plan with your deliverables and, and invoicing and all of that. But the actual development of the proposal and any costs associated with that are, are on the companies and the bidders. Yeah, and it takes 100, 200 hours, depending on, or more. Yep, it really can. And, and some of the contracts are huge. You know, some of the requirements are really big. So um, you have to approach every opportunity with um, some analysis and make sure that it is the right 
opportunity for you to target. Make sure you've done your market research and you understand the requirement, you understand the customer, and, and that it makes sense for you because you won't be reimbursed for that investment. One of the things we've touched on a bit, I just want to circle back to a bit, is that there's sort of two very large groups when you're writing a proposal. There's the contracts office, which is contracting people. Mm-hmm. It's all they do is they execute contracts. So they're kind of like something between a procurement specialist and a lawyer. And then there's sometimes both on the team. <laughs> sometimes both. And then there's yep. your actual technical team. Your, your program office. So maybe your program office is about cybersecurity or maybe your program office is making the F-35, but mm-hmm. those are the more technical people who are delivering something to the military for the military to use. So I just want to clarify that. And the, the technical team, the program office uses a contract office and they can actually move that around. Um, yes. the contract office they want to use. I know I, a family member who said, oh, the Marines would come to her contract office because they knew how to do some special tricks, you know, just some different types of contracting vehicles. Um, there's, and that's a whole other discussion we can do separately about all of the contracting vehicles. James, right. But also know in terms of contracting vehicles for anyone here who's an SBIR winner, I always try to tell my teams this, it opens you up to sole sourcing. So they can, you can and should inform their contract office that they can sole source you, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. But speaking of how competitive these things are, when you you want to make sure that your company is structured appropriately, um, but I also wonder if it's worth getting these things like the designation. So like a woman-owned business or a minority-owned business, a veteran-owned business. Can you speak to that? Sure. So um, every government agency has uh, contracting targets and quotas for the socioeconomic designations, you know, that you mentioned. So woman-owned, small business, WOSB is one, service-disabled, veteran-owned, small business, minority-owned business, and then within minority-owned, there's an 8A program, which is a business development program out of the Small Business Administration. Um, so every, every agency and every uh, contracting team will have targets, um, and you can find them. They're published. So Typically, woman-owned small business is anywhere between five and eight percent. So all acquisition dollars should be targeted, you know, five to eight percent set aside, which means when they develop their acquisition strategy, they will limit competition only to that designation. So only woman-owned small businesses who are certified are able to bid. So for the woman-owned example, I think it is worth it. Um, it is a certification, so it's another um, you know, application that you have to file and pay a processing fee, but it's not too hard. It's not a very heavy lift and it will open up set aside opportunities um, that kind of limit the competition for that effort. <laughs> Blocking and tackling. Yeah, it can be worth it. Some of the things like are a much heavier lift, some of the other designations, right? Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And you also mentioned NAICS codes. What are those NAICS codes? NAICS codes, yes. So the North American Industrial Classification System, uh, it's a a government classification system for the type of work. So, um, for example, engineering support is 541330. It's just a number. And I've worked a lot in that NAICS code, so I know that off the top of my head. Um, It's just a way that the government can track the type of work that's being performed and the type of acquisition strategies being performed against those codes. So when you create your SAM account and you go in and you're, you check off the type of work you do and where your office is and what socioeconomic um, boxes you can check, 
you have an opportunity to check off the NAICS codes that are relevant to you. So if you're an engineering company, you would want to make sure that you check off the codes that you potentially could work in or, or sell in. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're currently doing that work. Sometimes mm -hmm. there are tangential NAICS codes where you might be a software developer, but there could be a cyber component to that. So mm -hmm. you want to be prepared and always checking back into SAM to make sure that you are registered for the NAICS codes so that you can see those opportunities and respond to them. Very good. I say so make sure you update it as your company becomes updated. Right. I think we've hit on um, a lot of key points here. I, one of the takeaways I'm getting from this is how in a way impersonal it is. It's very it's an enterprise sale, but kind of with blindfolds on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it's just very, very different, but you still have to network. You still have to get your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. um, I think we were talking before about partnerships too and how, how valuable they are, that it can help you get your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that it, when you, when you, if you don't have a history of working with them, they have no way to tell what your history is of working with them. Weren't you talking about a catch 22? It, yeah. It's, it can be a tough situation. Um, I've seen RFPs that require past performance within the DOD. So if you have just done commercial work or research and development and you're out of a university, immediately you can't bid that effort on your own, right? So if in that scenario, you know that your technology or your solution would bring value, that would be a case where you would wanna find a partner who could be your prime and lead that effort. And then you could be a subcontractor to help provide value. There's a lot of considerations, you know, as a prime contractor working with the government, you assume a lot of risk. If you bid a contract and you win and you don't perform, you may end up owing the government money because mm -hmm. you've signed you've signed a contract to deliver certain things within a schedule and a cost. And if you can't do that, there can be some pretty serious repercussions to that. So you have to make sure that you are prepared and you have your structure in place. And, and sometimes you have to be prepared for growth. So what happens if we win? If we win this really big multi-million dollar effort that's a five-year contract, how are we going to scale? How are we going to perform? And performance, exceptional performance is very, very important because at the end of every government contract, you get a report card called a CPAR, which is a contract progress um, action report. And so your government customer will create that to analyze your performance. And if you get a bad CPAR, you could be in big trouble. It could <laughs> lock you out from, from future bids because the next time you go to bid, there could be a question that says, have you ever received a poor CPAR? And you have to check yes. <laughs> and, and CPARs are public. There's a whole database where they're stored forever. So performance is very, very important if you are able to win. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's sort of begs, another way to go is to be someone else's subcontractor too. You always need an integrator anyway. They don't mm -hmm. buy widgets. They buy integrated things ultimately. Right. Ultimately. And they will I would fund say some too, research on widgets and some de de technology development, test and evaluation. Mm -hmm. It can be hard to sell directly, um, especially mm -hmm. if you're new. Even if your technology is amazing and you know that it would add value and that you know DOD needs it, it still can be hard to get there. Yeah. Um, People pull using, it off, No, no, I, I don't want to discourage you because there are a lot of different ways. You know, we're talking a lot about this kind of traditional contracting where you look at the pre-solicitation market research activities, you go through a proposal, now you're in contract execution. But you know, earlier we talked about the SBIR process. Um, there's also consortiums or OTAs 
other transaction agreements, which is another way to uh, sell and learn about opportunities to work with the government. So, so no, I, I don't want to discourage anyone, but it's just making sure that you understand what some of the challenges can be and um, have a realistic expectation of some of the investment that you'll need to make and some of the time that'll be required. It's definitely a complicated landscape, <laughs> like all enterprise landscapes. So I thank right. you so much, Stephanie, for sharing your expertise with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts? I just want to kind of foot stomp that networking and engaging with the community is really important. It helps with partnerships, it helps with introductions to government customers. And the organization that I work for, I just want to put a small plug for them, uh, North Star Campus. It's really great, uh, right next to Hanscom Air Force Base. We're really tied in with DOD. We can help companies build some of those connections. And the Nexus Center, which has just opened right across the hall, is a joint service effort with Army Futures Command and other DOD innovation agencies as well. So we're certainly not the only organization, but we can bring a lot of value if you're in the New England area. But I just encourage you to get out there and do some research and, and engage. Yeah, absolutely. And some other universities have DOD centers as well. And I do. Even, the Department of Defense is even involved with AFOA, Advanced Functional Fabric. So whatever it is you're doing, you will probably find a, a Nexus Center or North Star Campus that appeals to you. Um, that's, that's really good advice for whatever the business enterprises um, and whether you want to do government sales or not, whoever you're targeting, get out there and network. Always good advice. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fundable Founder. Please go to our website at mass-ventures.com for more information on Mass Ventures and where you can also find other episodes just like this.